This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Post-Sedation Recovery and Discharge by Dr. David Banks in collaboration with the Society for Pediatric Sedation. Welcome to the Society for Pediatric Sedation's online provider course on post-sedation recovery and discharge. At the end of this lecture, students should be able to describe the various stages during the recovery period and the most common sedation and or procedure-related adverse events. Students should also be able to describe the important elements in the environment that promote patient safety that includes a consistent, systematic approach to the recovery process. The post-procedure recovery phase is that part of the sedation encounter that starts as soon as the procedure is completed and finishes once the patient returns to their baseline status and is ready for discharge. This part of the sedation encounter is the most neglected and unscientific portion of the sedation process. While there has been increasing research in the field of procedural sedation, few studies have addressed the post-sedation phase. What information we have has been mostly extrapolated from post-anesthesia patients, many of whom have received significantly different pharmacologic agents. Discharge criteria need to be tailored to the type of sedation performed, but are frequently poorly defined. The characteristics of the post-sedation phase include, it can be short, but depending on the agents used, it can represent the longest phase of the sedation process. This phase consists of different stages and depths of sedation and comprises the time period immediately following the procedure when the depth of sedation may be indistinguishable from that during the procedure to the awake status just preceding discharge. Of note, a number of sedation or procedural related adverse events may occur during this phase. Indeed, major complications may occur. The level of care provided to the patient changes as we move through the sedation process. Initially, in the pre-sedation phase, care is escalating, focusing on assessment, preparation, and planning for the procedural sedation. During procedural sedation, the level of care is high, focused on monitoring for patient safety, successful completion of the procedure, and management of the patient's comfort when indicated. During post-sedation and recovery, care diminishes as the patient returns to their baseline physiologic status as we approach discharge. This is a study from the University of Michigan Medical Center in Ann Arbor, looking at adverse events and risk factors for sedation performed by non-anesthesiologists. This was a chart review using a quality tool that had recently been implemented, as well as the medical record. The authors commented on the difficulties in collecting accurate quality information, as they noted that they found an additional 14 cases where the patient experienced a respiratory event documented in the medical record, but not reported on the quality tool. What is relevant about this study is that 5% of the reported events occurred during the post-sedation recovery phase. This is Cote's article looking at adverse outcomes from procedural sedation. A total of 118 events were collected from the Adverse Drug Reaction Reporting System of the FDA and other sources. 95 cases met the criteria for further review. They found 60 cases resulting in death or permanent neurologic injury. 
Eight of these cases occurred during the recovery phase, some after discharge. What they found is that patients are at greater risk for events occurring during recovery if they receive medications with long elimination half-lives and or drug combinations. Recovery is a continual process, part of the physiologic continuum of sedation that begins with the initial dose of a sedative medication, passes through the peak effect, and the fall of serum and target organ drug levels. In our collective experience, we have seen that this continuum of recovery can be divided into three phases. In the immediate post-procedure phase, the sedation depth may be indistinguishable from the level of sedation required during the procedure. Consequently, some of the same adverse events that occur during procedural sedation may occur during this stage, during which the patient regains protective reflexes and purposeful movement, progressing to wakefulness. This can be rapid or prolonged, dependent upon the choice of sedative and many other factors. The early stage of recovery is characterized by emergence from sedation and progression to an awake, more aroused state. The timing of this part of the recovery period is dependent on the drug's pharmacokinetics and how quickly the drug leaves the central nervous system. Excitatory phenomena like agitation may occur during this stage. During the late stage of recovery, the patient appears to return to baseline clinically and is ready for discharge from the sedation unit. It is during the late stage where most, if not all, residual effects of sedation, both physiologic and psychological, resolve. Side effects during this stage may be related to the procedure or the sedative. To put these on a timeline, one can see that there is overlap of the three phases of recovery. If we look at what types of adverse events occur and when they are most likely to occur, we can be better prepared to deal with them. In the immediate phase, there may be continued impairment of airway reflexes or impaired respiratory effort, resulting in airway obstruction, apnea, and hypoxia. The adverse events during this stage will be similar to those occurring during the actual procedural sedation. So, a quick review of pharmacokinetics. Following a dose of IV sedative, there is rapid fall of plasma concentrations as the drug distributes out of the plasma into the vessel-rich group of organs, including the central nervous system, and with onset of clinical effect. After the central nervous system and other vessel-rich organs fill, the plasma levels fall more slowly as the slow-filling organs take on drug. Plasma levels then drop even more slowly as elimination begins to remove drug. Clinical effect occurs somewhere within the oval. We see how the clinical effect occurs when we overlay the graph of the concentration of drug at the effector site. The red line represents the concentration of drug in the effector site. It rises initially as drug drains out of the plasma into the central nervous system. Then both concentrations fall as drug drains into the slow compartment. As drug levels climb in the central nervous system, there is the onset of clinical effect. Time to peak effect is usually literally the time from the bolus to the peak central nervous system concentration. The duration of the drug is going to be the time from onset of action until the time the central nervous system levels have dropped sufficiently so that the clinical effect is no longer present. So with many of the short-acting sedatives with rapid onset and usually rapid offset of clinical effect, there may still be sufficient drug present to produce respiratory depression and once the noxious stimulus of the procedure ends, the patient may experience significant respiratory compromise in the immediate recovery stage. In the early phase, the patient emerges from sedation to a more aroused state. There can be excitatory phenomena, 
including dysphoria and agitation, as well as laryngospasm. Excitatory phenomena during the recovery period is most common in younger children and typically self-limiting. Factors that influence whether the child experiences emergence phenomena include how quickly the sedative effects resolve, whether any pain is present, and the child's anxiety and temperament prior to the procedure. Although much of our focus in preparation for a given procedural sedation is the formulation of the plan for the sedation itself, there is increasing evidence that we can do our patients and ourselves a favor by also focusing on the patient's state of mind prior to the sedation. If we want to minimize the emergence phenomena of agitation, dysphoria, and delirium during early recovery, then minimizing anxiety in the pre-sedation setting can be the key. If we look at the emotional state of the child during pre-sedation, that is what may well be seen in early recovery. There is evidence that having a child-friendly environment and a strong child life service in the pre-sedation area are worthwhile investments. There are three studies that have demonstrated this, showing that high preoperative anxiety is correlated with high excitement recovery scores and emergence delirium. And many of these kids had difficulty on induction as well. During the final stage of recovery, the patient returns to their pre-sedation physiologic status and residual sedation effects resolve as discharge readiness is assessed. Longer acting agents may continue to have residual sedation effects. The duration of this stage may also be prolonged by a number of factors not related to the level of sedation and include sedative-related nausea and vomiting, which is more common, for example, with opioids. In addition, Pain following an invasive procedure may require treatment prior to discharge. This is a chart showing the time to peak effect and duration of some of the commonly used sedative medications. Floral hydrate and pentobarbital are highly protein bound, which has the effect of increasing the volume of distribution and decreasing the end organ concentration. When these medications are combined with any other highly protein bound medication, the effect could be a significant rise in sedative medication end organ concentration with deeper and or more prolonged sedation than anticipated. These medications have a somewhat longer duration, but the total time necessary to completely clear the medications can be days. For instance, the half-life clearance for one of the active metabolites of chloral hydrate is 100 hours. In the late phase of recovery, we have concerns about prolonged or persistent CNS depression effects. This is a prospective study from the University of Iowa College of Medicine looking at the post-discharge side effects of standard doses of chloral hydrate. More than half the patients still had symptoms four hours post-dose. More than a fourth had symptoms greater than eight hours post-dose. Persistent side effects past four hours included sleepiness in 28%, unsteadiness in 68%, hyperactivity in 29%, and vomiting in 15%. This is a similar study from University of Michigan Ann Arbor with a larger patient population being sedated for radiology procedures with either chloral hydrate or midazolam in standard doses. Patients were discharged after basic discharge criteria were met. A telephone questionnaire was completed 24 hours later. A similar spectrum of side effects was described. In this patient population, more than half of the patient still experienced side effects eight hours later. 10% of parents reported the symptoms were still present at 24 hours. Infants experienced delayed recovery more often than older children. Chloral hydrate was used commonly in the past for pediatric sedation, 
However, as it is no longer in production, supplies are diminishing, and it is no longer available in most institutions. So with long-acting medications with persistent side effects, and case reports of permanent neurologic injury and death following sedation, how do we select criteria to determine when a patient has recovered sufficiently for safe discharge? Most units use some kind of assessment tool, but in many circumstances, discharge criteria are met when the experienced nurse says that the patient can go. This is another study from the University of Michigan Health Systems, Ann Arbor. This is a prospective study looking at an observational or nurse assessment approach versus combined objective scoring tools to determine discharge eligibility following sedation. The scoring tools were the University of Michigan Sedation Scale and the Minimum Maintenance of Wakefulness Test. To meet the revised criteria, a patient had to have a UMSS of 0 or 1 and an MMWT of greater than 20 minutes. 29 children were sedated for echocardiography, 27 received chloral hydrate, and 2 received midazolam and diphenhydramine. All had this monitoring. The assumption was that a VIS of greater than 90 correlated with awake. When the children met the observational criteria for discharge, the average VIS was 86. By the time they met revised criteria, the average BIS was 95. So the data suggests that patients are closer to baseline when meeting the revised criteria. However, performing the tests to determine if patients met revised discharge criteria is labor-intensive and time-consuming. And there is some question of the validity of BIS in infants and toddlers. So there is some scientific information, however vague, to guide us toward the best management of recovery. There are also guidelines and policy statements from various organizations, including the American Society of Anesthesiology, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, and the Joint Commission. Recommendations from each of these entities don't necessarily spell out the specifics of how to build a quality sedation service, but can basically be summarized as stating that you need the right people in the right setting doing the right things. Let's review the essential elements of a quality post-sedation recovery service that has been suggested by these organizations. The right people is the sedation and recovery team that possess the appropriate knowledge and skill sets for recovering children from procedural sedation. Individual team member competency should be assessed at regular intervals. The right setting represents the recovery area, which should be logistically located adjacent to the sedation area with appropriate space, lighting, equipment, and medications necessary for resuscitation. Doing the right things is following the structure of policies and protocols to assure objective monitoring and assessment of children as they progress through the recovery to discharge. Putting these elements together builds the foundation of a quality post-sedation recovery service. The team includes appropriate medical supervision. The medical director is responsible for establishing and reviewing the policies and protocols of the recovery area. Team members must include sedation nurses, which are nurses with appropriate knowledge and skill sets to manage deep sedation patients. The sedation nurse must be present and dedicated to caring for and monitoring the recovering patient until that patient has reached a predetermined level of recovery. The team must also include a licensed independent practitioner who possesses advanced airway skills and appropriate knowledge of procedural sedation medicine and is immediately available to the area. For most teams, this is going to be one of the sedation physicians. 
The recovery area must be equipped with monitoring and resuscitation equipment. Patients coming to the recovery area may still be deeply sedated, so monitoring and resuscitation equipment that is present in the sedation area must be duplicated in the recovery area. This includes an oxygen source, suction, a bag mask device, face mask and nasal cannula oxygen delivery equipment, intubation equipment, airway devices, oral airways, nasopharyngeal airways, and laryngeal mask airways, reversal agents, and an age-appropriate code cart. Regarding the overall structure set by the institution, both the Joint Commission and CMS specify requirements for post-procedure or post-sedation monitoring. Specifically, the Joint Commission in 2013 states, the hospital monitors the patient's physiologic status, mental status, and pain level, the frequency and intensity consistent with the potential effect of the sedation or anesthesia administered. Similarly, the CMS recommends that the elements of an adequate post-anesthesia evaluation should be clearly documented and conform to current standards of anesthesia care, including respiratory function, including respiratory rate, airway, patency, and oxygen saturation, cardiovascular function, including pulse rate and blood pressure, mental status, pain, and nausea and vomiting. Policies and protocols should be established that dictate the procedure to be followed in the recovery area. This will include what parameters are to be monitored and how often, how to assess and document the patient's recovery, and what measures are used to determine discharge readiness. Any adverse events that occur during recovery should be documented and then tracked and reviewed to determine the circumstances that led to the event and to see if there is a system or process issue that needs revision in order to prevent adverse events during recovery for future patients. Typically, a scoring system is used to assist with this process. Most services use some form of modified Aldredi score, which we will review in the next few slides. The importance of a consistent, systematic recovery process cannot be overemphasized. One of the most important aspects of this process is use of a recovery scoring system. There are a number of advantages in using a scoring system. Most notably, it provides a reliable, quantifiable, consistent process that promotes communication among the providers and quality assessment. Use of a scoring system complies with requirements from the Joint Commission and CMS. The Aldredi score is probably the most widely used recovery scoring system and is comprised of two phases. Earlier we described the post-sedation recovery period of the sedation process as having three phases, the immediate, early, and late phases of recovery. The immediate phase beginning at the conclusion of the procedure during which the patient is still deeply sedated the early phase during which the patient arouses from sedation, and the late phase, which may extend for hours or days after discharge, during which time all physiologic effects of the sedation medication resolve. We can also look at the post-sedation period as being divided into two phases based on the level of care required. In phase one, the patient has minimal spontaneous movement and still requires close monitoring. Patients transition to phase two as they emerge and require less monitoring. This transition can be demonstrated with an objective scoring method. Phase one roughly corresponds to what we described earlier as the immediate phase, and phase two roughly corresponds to the early phase. For the typical sedation patient that is recovering from a short-acting sedative hypnotic medication such as propofol, 
This modified Aldredi can be applied and rapidly scored. As you can see, a patient that has stable vital signs, normal respirations, normal pulse ox saturations, and normal peripheral color will quickly score a minimum of seven. As soon as there is any spontaneous purposeful movement, or if the patient is arousable, that patient will score an eight and can be documented as having moved to phase two. In phase two, the level of monitoring can be relaxed significantly. The Aldredi score has been used for decades to assess the progress of post-anesthesia patients in the recovery room. This is one of the many modifications of the Aldredi score. It is simple and the patient can be scored quickly utilizing brief observations and vital signs. Note the sum of the yellowed boxes have a score of nine and in the author's experience is what the typical patient looks like when transitioning from phase one to phase two. Discharge criteria are based on objective assessments and typically include a minimal time element such as 30 minutes with some consideration given based on the half-life of the sedative medication that was used. Most patients can be safely discharged when they have met the following criteria. One, stable respiratory status. Two, normal airway control. Three, no vomiting and tolerating clear liquids. Four, level of awareness, the ability to stay awake. Five, activity, good head control and normal locomotion for age. Six, vital signs remain stable. Again, most patients can be safely discharged after meeting these criteria. There are a couple of patient groups that warrant special considerations. Many facilities use the post-anesthetic discharge scoring system for phase two anesthesia patients, which was designed for patients recovering from general anesthesia. The elements include vital signs, activity, nausea and vomiting, pain, and surgical bleeding. While the score is designed primarily for post-surgical patients, Aspects of the score are relevant to post-procedural sedation patients as well. Scores of greater than eight are required for discharge. As we mentioned, there are two groups that require special considerations for discharge readiness. The first group is patients that have received sedative medications with long half-lives. The half-life of chloral hydrate is greater than eight hours, and the half-life of pentobarbital is 24 hours. These patients warrant a longer observation time. In addition, patients that required reversal agents should be observed for at least two hours beyond the time of administration of the reversal agent. Also, patients that have received prolonged administration of short-acting sedatives may require extended recovery observation. The second group of special consideration sedation patients are young infants. The Society of Pediatric Sedation recommends using the American Society of Anesthesiologists post-anesthesia guidelines for post-sedation care for infants. Infants are at greater risk for adverse events during and after sedation and require a two-hour recovery period. Full-term infants, that is infants born greater than 37 weeks gestation, must be at least 44 weeks post-conception age and have experienced no confounding events during sedation or recovery to go home at two hours after awakening. Otherwise, they must have a 12-hour post-sedation observation period. Confounding events are clinically significant episodes of apnea, hypoxia, or airway obstruction. Preterm infants, that is infants born less than 37 weeks gestation, must be at least 52 weeks post-conception age and have experienced no confounding events during sedation or recovery to go home at two hours after awakening. 
Otherwise, they must have a 12-hour post-sedation observation period. In summary, adverse events during the recovery phase are not uncommon, so vigilance must be maintained throughout the sedation encounter. Factors that promote safe recovery include the presence of monitoring and resuscitative equipment, trained personnel, and a standardized recovery process. While no gold standard exists for discharge readiness, a systematic, structured approach to the discharge process is likely to enhance discharge safety. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.